Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Donna M. Hughes, PhD, who is a professor and holds the Eleanor M. and Oscar M. Carlson Endowed Chair in Women's Studies at the University of Rhode Island. Currently, she serves as the Director of Graduate Studies, and she is one of the founders of the Academic Study of Human Trafficking. She has completed research on the trafficking of women and girls for sexual exploitation in the United States, Russia, Ukraine, and Europe. She also does research and publishing with students on sexual exploitation and trafficking in Rhode Island. In 2016, she founded the academic open access journal Dignity, a journal of sexual exploitation and violence. In 2017, she was awarded the University of Rhode Island College of Arts and Science Annual Research Award. And in 2017, she was awarded the Alice Paul Award for Women Who Have Worked to Confront Men's Violence Against Women from the Committee on Feminist Movement History, National Organization for Men Against Sexism. In recognition of her advocacy, she has been invited to the White House in Washington, D.C. and the Rhode Island State House to witness the signing of important new laws. I welcome Donna M. Hughes to Savage Minds. To briefly recap, you got yourself into a little bit of a pickle with the University of Rhode Island, which seems to be distancing itself from you because of an essay that you wrote for 4W, a fourth wave feminist website. That's correct. In one news piece was you wrote, people are losing social media accounts or being fired for misgendering someone or not affirming a person's claimed quote unquote gender identity. And you also point out the increase uh, in numbers of adolescents, teens, who are signing up for harmful treatments. And it's been decided that this is quite harmful by certain bodies in the UK, whether that makes it across the pond is yet to be seen. But we know that the bottom line of what is called transgender identity has zero evidence in science, zilch, like zero. I just interviewed Gina Rippon the other day, who's one of the most important researchers in the field of neurology and brain sex, there is no such thing as the female brain. There is no such thing as the male brain. That's right. Here you are, Donna. You have a PhD and you don't know that gender's on a spectrum. Oh, what are your pronouns, by the way? <laughs> uh, I, I don't give them. And I'm I have been, <laughs> no, and I have And I have been sort of singled out in a meeting for not giving pronouns. At your university? Yes. Well, when I left the University of Montreal, in Montreal, there's a Krispy Kreme factory. And I went there one day to pick up my required donuts. And they give you these hats that the workers wear behind the store where they are actually making the donuts and they're wearing these sanitary hats. And I thought of bringing them for my colleagues because even back in the 2000s, the early 2000s, I saw that universities were already kowtowing to a certain ideology. For the University of Montreal, it began with, we have to call our students clients. They're not students anymore, they're clients. I haven't and, heard that. Yeah, well, it's dripping over. It dripped over before that with, within the fields of psychiatry and psychology, where clients were also used. So the meeting you were in where you refused to give your pronouns, why are departments adopting this? Why are universities adopting this new speak when it's quite clear that this is a choice of people to do, it should likewise be a choice for you to opt out of. Well, I think we need to understand the nature of this movement. And it really isn't about uh, people making uh, choices uh, that 
of how they would like to dress or behave and present themselves. This is really a totalitarian movement. Uh, and it is taking aim at the heart of intellectual uh, in freedom, which is in universities. Yes, it's happening in, in companies and government offices and so forth. But if you think about who you need to attack in order to destroy uh, free thinking, it's the universities. And so therefore, I don't think it's just chance that there are so many uh, academics around the world who are under fire. I think it's uh, I think it's purposeful, and they know they have to take the intellectuals out. And you are the director of graduate studies in a women's studies department, correct? That's correct. Can you give our listeners a bit of a background about what's happened to women's studies since the late 1980s? Because a lot of people are unaware how women's studies departments have either been erased or replaced. <laughs> right. You know, the beginning of women's studies, oh, and what women's studies did was very important. Uh, it was the study of women, uh, it was interdisciplinary, and it put women in the center. Uh, instead of uh, all disciplines being male-centered, it said, what if we put women in the center, looked at what their experiences have been and what they have done and learn from that? That was women's studies. And then when, the, when postmodernism arose and started a, a, a really a takeover of women's studies, it shifted from being women's studies to gender studies. At that point, the uh, studies and scholarship became much more abstract. Uh, it was less rooted in women's experience. And it really became more about wordplay, uh, analyzing what they thought was power. Uh, and uh, there was then the introduction of uh, queer theory uh, into gender studies, which often had very little to do with women. And it has just sort of continued a deterioration of scholarship ever since then. And what has happened to you from the university where you teach and even surrounding universities, student faculty reactions, and have you been disciplined? Uh, no, I haven't, uh, which is uh, not what they wanted. Uh, one of the things is that uh, early on, I knew that I was sort of on the track, the train tracks and the train was coming. Uh, so <laughs> at the recommendation of a friend, I uh, obtained a, an attorney mm. uh, and uh, she started writing letters saying that I had free speech and that I could not be disciplined for exercising my free speech. And it was really those advanced letters that were really got on top of it before uh, things started to happen that reminded the uh, general counsel of the university what my rights were and what they could not do. So therefore, although there's been all sorts of nastiness, um, I have retained my job. They know they can't fire me. Uh, I have not been uh, disciplined. Uh, although they have a whole committee set up to review uh, unfavorable comments made by professors or actions, uh, that has not been put in place, all because uh, they know that at least under the US system, I cannot be punished for my free speech. So at this point, um, nothing has happened other than all round nastiness, and of course, uh, really defamation. I mean. Uh, they've attacked me and the, the things they've said about me have been false. Uh, they've smeared my research and said absolute lies about my research. And this is signed by the faculty, by my, my colleagues. The things that they have said have been absolute lies. 
And what's more is their call my colleagues, they know what my research is. They know that they were lying uh, when they wrote and published these things. What are some of the things that they have accused you of? Well, most of my academic career has been researching sex trafficking and sexual exploitation of uh, women and girls. And um, they wrote in this letter that I had paid no attention to race and intersectionality. I have been writing about the sexual exploitation of Asian women and race since the mid 1990s. I have talked about the racial stereotypes that are mixed with the uh, sexist stereotypes. Uh, I have been, was involved in uh, research efforts to expose the Asian massage parlors in the state where I live in. I was involved in helping to draft and lobby for a sex trafficking law in our state that was then enabled them to, to um, target the Asian massage parlors to make arrests and to shut them down. So, you know, from 1990s until just the last couple of years, my work has focused on sexual exploitation, sex trafficking, and I have always talked about uh, the uh, racial stereotypes. So then they published a letter saying that I don't, I don't uh, pay any attention to race. Okay, I was worried when you were starting to explain that, that you were going to be called whorephobic and that you didn't take the traffickers' feelings into consideration. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Because that's next, you know that. Yes, right, yes. Well, this begs the question, if this movement is not more obsessed with language than actions, should you need to be underlining race at all? Since you're working on human trafficking of women, of girls, what... What should that matter? If you have shut down a massage parlor of white supremacists, should that matter? I mean, the point seems to me that this lobby is missing the forest for the trees. Add to that, I mean, I was reading through your university response where the faculty members, they say, have the same rights, obligation, and responsibilities as other American citizens. They go on about how they honor and respect the right to freedom of speech, blah, blah, blah. But then they said that its professors have the general right to academic freedom, the general right, here we go. So I guess that's a but. These rights are not boundless, however, and should be exercised responsibly with due regard for the faculty members' other obligations, including their obligations to the university students and university committee uh, community. So this seems to be that they've been slammed by identitarians who've said to remember that we pay the bills here. Yeah, well, that last part, I mean, it's a nice bit of, uh, of language, but it's not legal. It has no legal standing. Uh, if I have the right to free speech, uh, there can be no buts after it uh, here in the United States. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it sounds like it's nice, but it, it has no legal meaning. Where has this gone so far then? I mean, you've, did you receive a formal letter? Uh, you aren't being disciplined. So what's the fallout from this? Well, no, I have not received a legal letter whatsoever. Uh, the only thing that has been uh, released or said about me has been public. Uh, public denunciations, um, online petitions, um, the, my department releasing a letter denouncing me to the students and other faculty. Actually, I don't know how far it was, it was released. Those are all public things. There has been no private communication with me at all. Other than that, I think at the very beginning, there was a, a, a private communication saying that the dean was about to release a statement about me, but that's it. 
Well, this is all very reminiscent to me of Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Remember that short story? Yes, yes. And it's like the weekly stoning, just like, let's go and we'll get Donna Hughes this week. I spoke to Mark Crispin Miller, who's facing a very similar case to yours. His has gone further because he took it further. He's suing his colleagues for defamation. Uh, Very similar stuff. And one Mm -hmm. has to wonder what's going on in higher education in the U.S. where this seems to be the weekly stoning. Who's it going to be next week? Yeah, yes, you're absolutely right. And I think that we're entering a real dark phase uh, for intellectual freedom. And uh, and that's the case, then it's for universities. Uh, And we can see that here in the United States, of course, uh, in UK and uh, Australia. Uh, I think these are very dark times in which, uh, as you said, they stone somebody or they select someone and then everyone else is just scared to death and is just silenced. And it just allows the bullies to just keep sweeping over uh, the landscape, uh, doing whatever they want, saying you have to use this, you can't say that. Um, And when you see some of the, the, the small infractions that someone has done, I mean, it's almost impossible to ever meet their standards, which is of course part of the pro- pro- part of their method. And that is uh, someone can even think they're being compliant, but next week they won't be. Yes, we've seen that even when the trans community went after one of their own a few years ago, trying to contend that Jane County was transphobic because he referred to trans people as transsexuals. And he said, I've always said transsexuals. I'm going to say transsexuals. I'm not going to stop saying transsexuals. That sort of died in the water. We, we meaning vagina havers, we are not allowed (laughs) to- I've never used that term before, but okay, if you want to use it. (laughs) Oh no, I'm I'm being facetious. I'm sorry, you don't know know me personally, but I just find the news speak surreal. Oh, I use it all the time because when I get front noodlers on the show, what my word for men is front noodlers, you know, the- the distortion of logic, of reason, of science has no ends with this lobby. That's right. So how do you how do you go to work and see your colleagues? Like these are people who have actively defamed you. Like they could have been doing something else, right? There's loads of right. Netflix series they could have been worrying about. They could have been on a who knows. There's probably a website to create your new pronoun. They could have been there, but they yeah. chose you. What do you yes. say to that? Well, in some ways. Um, a lot of my views have been unpopular in my department for a long time. Uh, I believe that uh, prostitution and all forms of sexual exploitation are forms of violence. Uh, I have a lot of colleagues that would prefer to advocate for sex work. Uh, I have been a long time opponent uh, of pornography and see it as uh, also forms of of, of violence against uh, women and girls, particularly although also men and boys. Um, and they have opposed that. I mean, that's been a, a debate that I've been involved with, with uh, colleagues, although mostly it's just gone silent ever since I arrived at the University of Rhode Island in, in 1996. So some of this is once the uh, attack started, I feel like there were a number of colleagues that like, oh God, we've been waiting years to get her. And you know, it was immediate pile on. Um, so I think there's some of that in operation. Uh, I. I'm working off location because we're of course in this COVID lockdown and I have been teaching my courses online and therefore I'm not on the campus. So therefore I have not had to walk uh, 
past one of my colleagues and look them right in the eye, which I will do. I will not look away. Uh, and I think that's going to be very interesting when, when that happens because I won't back down. And my, I think my colleagues, they know they're lying. They know what they are saying is a lie. And uh, I think in some ways, that even thinking about what's the psychology of that, when you attack someone that's your colleague and you lie and you know you're lying and you know that person wrote letters of recommendation for you and they stood up for you and fought for you when you were being untreated fairly, all of those things. And they, they do it anyway. Well, I was in academia for quite a long time and I left, I was mobbed at the University of Montreal. Two mm. colleagues, unfortunately, both female. Uh, <laughs> it was surreal. One, she is a closeted lesbian and, and was sexually harassing me for years and I had to shut up as I was advised by a friend in New York, shut up until you get tenure. And finally, I had to make a complaint and the university did nothing. The other one represented my time at the university in a way that didn't reflect the contract. She would say things like, well, you're not allowed to travel for research in the summer, which we know is not true in any right. university in Canada and the US, simply not true. And the universities are very quick to defend these lackeys. One was yes. the lackey of another, and the first was the former chair and later became the chair again. And I was really shocked to see this kind of circus drummed up right. and how institutions can assist and support some of the most non-productive members of its community who can yes. rabble rouse the large. You're it, absolutely right. It's phenomenal. And I have that, I call that, uh, what I've come to call that is the emperor's new clothes phenomenon. And I've seen this happening and growing a lot in the last few years. And that is, it doesn't matter what somebody does if they're on the, on the inside. Um, it doesn't matter how poor their presentation was. It doesn't know. Everyone gathers around after what, oh, wasn't that wonderful? Oh, that was just so wonderful. You know, isn't she wonderful? You know, and it's nothing but it's nothing but the emperor's <laughs> new clothes. And they do this all the time anymore, that everything is affirmed. Yeah. And, and it doesn't matter what it is. It's affirmed. Emperor's new clothes. I also see this because I'm coming from the social sciences and humanities where people love to name drop. I love Derrida, but you never hear any substance. Like I want to say to them, and I do at times, have you understood Derrida? Have you understood Judith Butler? Because if you have, I want you to tutor her to me. I hate to tell you this, but I have taught queer theory. I taught it in the early days before it jumped the shark. And I've told people, read Judith Butler. I've had to teach her work and she doesn't advocate for transgender anything. Nothing. She doesn't say go and get a surgery or hormones. She's talking about performativity in that book. Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick also addressed queerness as a way of rendering visible, let's say. Michael Moon, on and on. There's some good scholars in the yeah. field, but Butler somehow, that first book was unleashed, won the worst writing competitions of the country that year. And somehow she was catapulted to stardom within the UC system and then the US university system. She was whisked over to NYU when I was there. And I always found her work impervious to coherency. Let's put it that way. On the other hand, the visibility of, of lesbian and gay bodies, yes, of lesbian and gay cinema, cultural studies, absolutely. There were some great things that I got in my time as a student at NYU. I later taught there. Now, I noticed that your department on the internet 
is billed as a department of gender and women's studies. That's so correct. I That's see the there was some kind of compromise there, or was it always gender and women's studies? No, it was uh, it was uh, uh, women's studies until about um, I don't know if that was as long as ten years ago or, or not in which there was one person who uh, wanted to change it to gender studies. And I think she did a little lobbying around and, and uh, said, let's change it to gender studies. And then I think there ended up being a compromise uh, so that it was became gender and women's studies. And, and one of the things is it tells you a little bit about the, their goal is that after this passed, uh, the woman's name was Jody Lisberger. Uh, she started going around saying, oh, now we have to change the curriculum. I think we should go in in every course and if it, take women out of every title and replace it with gender. Every course description, every, the word should, woman should be struck and uh, gender should be put in its place. So it was really, even 10 years ago, it was just complete erasure of women and replaced with gender. And I mean, I'm enough of, an, of a, an old scholar to know what it was like in the second wave when women's history from the, from the first wave and really for, I mean, hundreds of years were, was being uncovered, that we had found out that women had been erased from history. And I just, I remember just sitting there going, that's exactly what you're doing. You're just re-erasing women after decades of uncovering them. Uh, and this is woman just didn't seem, she just seemed oblivious or she didn't care. In my experience, I find that these are the people, they often tend to be the very people who are targeted by the woke advocates, be they BLM, be they queerists. They're often white. She's not a man, but they're often white men in this case. She's the one who's advocating, were her words brought to fruition? Were they brought to complete fruition, she would have been out of a job. I mean, well, how would she feel if her job was given to a man who identifies as a woman and they say, well, he's a better fit? She would have a problem with that. She would say, but what does a man know about this field? Yeah, I think she didn't realize, and so many women don't seem to realize that if, uh, if they were successful in doing what they wanted, you're right, they would be targeted. And of course, one of the things that she, always, she used to advocate for inclusion of gender studies in, in our department's name uh, was that, oh, well, we can reach more people, we'll have more men involved, um, uh, and, and it'll be able to broaden our work. I mean, I have to say, I've been in women's studies since the, since the 1980s. I don't know why, but they're always, every few years, there's always a heterosexual woman pops up and says, we need more men. How can we reach out to men? And I just think, why do you want to reach out to men? <laughs> I mean, if they want to come and take our courses, fine. I mean, I'm not anti-man, but, but this, there's, there's just this need they seem to have for, for, their, for validation. They, and they have to have those men there uh, to validate them. Well, this is funny because, you know, just two months ago, there was a scholar, American scholar at St. Andrews in Scotland, who also advocated for queer this and that. And she basically was foisted by her own petard. She lost her job to a man in a department mm -hmm. that was supposed to be in the institute she founded, Institute of Gender Studies. There's a lot to say about female socialization here. Why are women trying to climb up the backs of other women? I mean, we've heard about the glass ceiling forever. Let's just leave the glass ceiling at one side. Why are women pushing women under to 
themselves gain dominance at the same time that they're playing a very dangerous game with a very slippery slope because they too, like Alison Kerr in Scotland, can be undone from their jobs. And they're, they're pushing this politics of oppression that they may or may not belong to, but having a university position where they're pretty cemented in their tenure would mean, well, even if they're you know, a black woman, they're better off than most black women, if you catch my drift. Right. So why is this politics of identity being pushed by the most privileged people in our society, regardless of, of ethnicity, of sex, where at the bottom of the, it all, we're not investigating the truly oppressed, the people you work on. I mean, yeah. how can any of your colleagues justify that sex work is empowering? How do you answer to that? I think they, I think they read it and they believe it because it's, it's trendy. And they don't have any idea what it is like to engage in an act of prostitution. Uh, they don't know, and um, it's just believing the lies of others. Uh, I mean, these lies just sort of get snowballed, and uh, they see that uh, people who are saying that sex work is not empowering uh, is it's it's passe, uh, and the new scholarship mm -hmm. is to talk about how empowering it is. And so they just they just go along with it. I thought that, I find that a lot of them aren't very deep thinkers. <laughs> but do you have your colleagues teaching courses on this? Uh, they, they, to my knowledge, there's no one teaching a course focusing on it. Um, but uh, they um, uh, may include that in their in their uh, teaching in other courses. How do we square the kind of work that you do? And you do some really cutting edge work on sexual exploitation and trafficking and human trafficking has never been higher today, be it for the ends of sexual exploitation or for labor exploitation. I've done work on both in Haiti, horrible. It's, it's on the increase, not the decrease, right? So how do you square that within a department where your own colleagues who buttress the idea of sex work is work are defaming you because of some very reasonable comments you made about the gender identity movement. You didn't make, I read what you said. There was nothing insane in your article for 4W. Yeah, well, uh, I think it's part of a whole. Uh, I think that they don't know what they're talking about. Oh, they like to pretend that they do. And, uh, and they take on these views because they think that's what's going to get them to fit in. No, they've never talked to a survivor of prostitution. They don't know, ever spoken to a, a, you know, a victim of sex trafficking. Uh, but uh, like I said, they read trendy things and they just go with it. And I think they wanna belong. It's like the woman who wanted to have more men in the department uh, because I think uh, it, uh, that's what would make her feel better. And now if she, if she wants to go along with the trend, well, then she has to say sex work is, is acceptable, it's empowering. Um, matter of fact, the, the, the chair of our department uh, who has been pushing for a queer studies minor told me privately, she says, actually, I, she says, I don't know what it is. I don't understand it at all. Meaning being transgender was what it was that she was referring to. So she privately tells me she doesn't understand what this identity is all about, but she's pushing for a queer studies minor because uh, somehow it, it, it's trendy. You're listening to Savage Minds, 
and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Well, this is shameful. Have you thought of organizing amongst some of your saner colleagues to push back on this? Because what you've just described, I've seen in my own career, where people are saying, well, this will get us funding. Yeah, the other won't, but this will. Why are departments then being thrust towards the five cent terminology with zero coherence over what might have more sanity benefits? Just beginning there. Well, I don't think I don't think that they're very courageous. I don't think they're really brave enough to take a, a stand against um, a, a burgeoning movement. Uh, I think they just go along to get along. Uh, as a, a favorite saying we have in the state of Rhode Island, you go along to get along. And uh, the, the high price of not uh, going along is, is, uh, is very high. There's also something very rapey about all this. I saw it early on years ago when women were being called front holers and people with uteruses. And it's gone into the institutional, even NHS jargon in the UK, in Canada as well, where are you a person with a cervix? Like what immigrant is going to understand that and know to get a pap smear? You know, right. so we're, we're talking right. about deep seated misogyny here. On the right. other hand, I agree. there's a rapiness to it. And I'm going to go to what I just published last night on the dating app, her, which I'm sure you use since you want to meet a man because this app is about, you can join the app unless you're, you know, Graham Linehan who did join and put on some great makeup. He was kicked off his point in joining with this outrageous photo, which I crack up when I see was to basically show that her is a hypocrite. They are advocating that lesbians like myself be forced into a virtual reality where men are one of my platter options. And when I say, no, I don't want that platter option, they say, you're kicked off. He was kicked off, even though her says explicitly on its website, it's for anyone who identifies yeah. as non-binary, queer, blah, blah, blah. So basically, it means anyone. Now, this right. is what they did yesterday. I was sent an email by a user of her, Donna, and she received an email yesterday morning that put her through their newsletter. One of the items on the newsletter, click, you're at a testosterone drug front window for an mm -hmm. online pharmacy that is trying to push lesbians towards becoming a man. So hers MO is this, date a man or become a man. Those are your two choices. Yeah. What could be more rapey and homophobic? Seriously. Right. I agree. I agree. What are ways that those of you in academia can push back or are there ways to push back against this? Um, I'm not sure there's a way to push back right now. I mean, you can, you can do it, but you, you know, what's the price? Uh, we have a, an academic here in the United States um, that just wrote a legal analysis of a bill that's in Congress. It was, it's called the Equality Act. And she did a really good analysis of, analysis of what does this say and what are the consequences if this bill passes. Very well written, excellent analysis. Uh, she's on the editor, was on the editorial board of uh, a journal called Feminist Cr Criminology. They kicked her off the board. 
so how can how can you know if you're a scholar and you write a legal analysis of a bill that's in Congress, and that can get you kicked off the editorial board of a journal. Well, you know, I just got to ask you, Donna, are you or have you ever been a turf? <laughs> I mean, doesn't this sound like a previous era? Well, I people... have to say, as, along with stating my pronouns, I will not answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's insane what we're living through. This is, I mean, yes. I'm not over there right now, but I tell you, when I see what's happening, I'm constantly, like I tell people in the UK, I can't believe that out of the two countries, one has free speech ingrained into its constitution and they are the least exercising of it. But in the UK, where I was living for years, I fought this, I've been fighting this for almost a decade now. I said, now we're getting to a point of, this has been addressed as improper legislation, unethical, the way that the round table on the Equalities Act in the UK did not even invite women, no female leaders, no no safeguarding professionals, right. nothing. It, it, it's almost as if the world is sexist. It's almost as if <laughs> the world was recognizing sex by saying it doesn't exist, right? Right. You right. Know, oh, that's the goal. It, well, yeah. Isn't it funny that all these gay men who tend to be like, pretend to be queer friendly and they put their pronouns on, well, they have a beard and their photo, and then they want to have children. And then they know exactly who has the uterus, right? right Isn't that right. weird that they're yes. not going to Laverne Cox for a baby? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that it, every, all the pieces fit together, whether it's a sexual exploitation where in, in surrogacy, uh, the diminishment of women uh, and their, their roles and their parts and everything, it, it, it's all part of a whole. Uh, these things are not separate. Is there a way that any of us could fight back then? I mean, I left academia. I'm writing about this. I'm interviewing people because I find this outrageous. And yeah. there are days, Donna, where I say to myself, oh, no more, no more, no more gender stuff. And then I think to myself again, because I have a devil's advocate in my head who says, well, we are 51% of the population. Like, I'm almost worried about the people will think this is, because I've had friends on Facebook who say, why are you obsessed over this? And I write them back and I'm like, I'm not obsessed. You should be upset about that. This is called upset, not obsessed. And yeah. here we are in some kind of Roman Polanski film obsession, where yeah. a woman saying that sex is real, uh, a woman who works on trafficking humans saying that's not great, is having to combat some moronic ideology that none of these people, not even the trans folks themselves or their BFFs, would ever go to a a man who says he's a female and ask him to be a surrogate for her child, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Of course, considering the hormones they're taking, I'm not sure I'd want her anyway. <laughs> well, that's the other problem is we've got all this uh, curiosity about if global warming is real, yes or no, and this has been divided amongst the left and the right, who does, who doesn't. But we've looked at recent reports, ecological reports that show a scaring amount of hormones, artificial hormones in our water supplies. Right. Wouldn't one think that the first go-to for evaluation would be the thousand percent, the thousands of percent of increase in the use of artificial hormones? Maybe this should be under study, not just by, let's say, the 
uh, Environmental Protection Agency in the US, but by human rights organizations and ecological organizations. It's not enough to say, I'm against destroying the Amazon, but here are my pronouns. And then you go to the HER app that puts you through a portal to take, I kid you not, the article yesterday that they sent HER users to was on a blog of a drugstore selling testosterone and they were selling it as party fun. It was called microdosing. Microdosing wow. is what people were doing, uh, you know, for the last two decades when they go to parties and they don't want to completely get high from mushrooms. So they take a little bit of mushrooms. Yeah. I had to read about it. I'm not an active drug user, but whatever. Um, and so this was, you know, the, the model, they're going to now convince lesbians that the, the, dance scene or the club scene of once upon a time pre-COVID for sure is where you get your kicks. So all socialization has moved from the street to the club, to the internet, and now to the internalized self injecting oneself. Right. I mean, this is sort of dystopic. Yes, it absolutely is. That's the right word. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I think, and because it is, I think this is, I mean, this is, it's not only like just been serious for what has happened to some individuals. This is a very serious dystopic uh, movement. Uh, and, uh, you know, what can we do? I think that those of us that uh, can write and talk should and will have to. One of the things that I see happening here in the United States is across the, the, the 50 states, there are many bills being introduced and passed uh, to retain women's sports for women and girls only and they're starting to pass. Um, and I think that's waking people up at that level. They, the, the average person doesn't really understand what the gender ideology is all about. Um, but they understand uh, when their girls uh, are in sports and suddenly there are uh, men and boys calling themselves women and girls invading the, the teams and the competitions. They understand that. So I think that might be one sort of rooted place we can start. Of course, there's just huge distortion in the media. All the headlines are just absolute lies that uh, if you pass a, a bill, it's gonna deny transgender uh, involvement in sports. It's gonna tra uh, deny transgender healthcare. If you say that someone has to be 18 before they can uh, uh, undertake certain hormone treatments. I mean, the, the headlines are just lies and it really takes um, some thinking and looking at the details to understand what's really going on. And of course, since, you know, particularly in the United States, we have just been hit with so much fake news uh, and um, with the very severe divide between the right and the left, where you go to one side and you read some about something and then you go to the other and it's hard to even recognize them as being uh, about the same event or the same speech. And so uh, on, after this disinformation campaign, it's been very successful. Uh, people just throw up their arms and their hands and say, I, you know, I don't know what to believe. You know, they, one side says this and one side said, I don't know what to believe. And so they give up and go away. I mean, that's a successful disinformation campaign when you have convinced people that they simply can't get to the truth. Uh, and this is gonna have to be taken on too. Uh, so it's, it's, um, it's, it's a very big threat. Well, I've had this interaction with fellow lesbians. In London, a few years ago, <laughs> I was writing a piece about this, telling my friends at their home, I was in their home, 
they got very chilly. I thought I was about to be thrown out. I'm not joking. In fact, our friendship goes on a chill every few months over this issue because lesbians have been, like gay men, have been groomed to accept this because we're reminded of many things. One, AIDS, the 1980s. I don't know when we'll pay that back, but whatever. Remember how we were thought to have AIDS? Remember how everyone thought that homosexuality was contagious? I'm like, yeah, but apples and oranges. We weren't running around saying, look at me and my girlfriend and I want you to see me in a heterosexual coupleship here. No, we're not trying to gaslight what people see. We were just saying, just leave us alone. Let us be, let us hold hands, let us kiss, just like you guys do. That's it. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not what's happened here. We're in, a, in the throes of, you said, totalitarianism earlier. Absolutely. This is a totalitarian, authoritarian dictatorship of the woke. Yes. They're a minority, but they're a very powerful and well-funded minority. And when you come to well-funded, you can almost bet your, you know, put money down that we're talking about people with penises funding this. So you've got a lot of penis funded money. I'm, I'm again, being sarcastic on purpose because this whole thing is supposed to be somehow a, a, a gotcha moment. Like, look, we're so many. No, you're just powerful. You've got a lot of free time. Again, men, you've got a lot of time to create bot farms. And I interviewed someone yesterday who's an expert in how bots work on the internet, but 60% of Twitter feed is bot generated, okay? So yeah. we're talking about former programmers and military personnel, the vast majority of trans were these in their former life or continue to be so. And we're up against the most insane forms of misogyny and being yes. told to accommodate that we're really looking at a six foot seven tall woman with hands larger than a watermelon, but that's okay. Like my eyes are still mine and I should have the right to say if I like the Gauguin or the Manet or to see if I see a man a eh? like what the hell is going on that really I, I can't even tell you how I think sometimes that I'm waking up a hundred years ago you know yeah I think you know what you've said is absolutely right and one of the things is I'm looking at this and analyzing it I mean words like totalitarian authoritarian dystopia dictatorship all are are there, but even using those words, you know, people's eyes glaze over and like, oh boy, you know, she's off the deep end. Uh, so it's a real challenge. Like, how do you describe this and start to name it and theorize about it um, and accurately name it without scaring people away, even with the, even with the big words? Um, yeah. So that's one of the things. And one of the things I've been sort of encouraging um, some of the young people to do and this is a happening, obviously, and that is create our own media uh, because we're going to need it. I mean, eventually all of us are going to get kicked off of Facebook or, or Twitter or, or somewhere, and we're going to need those. Uh, I, I, one of the things where I learned so much is I used to read a lot of the Soviet dissident literature and uh, other pro-democracy activists uh, over the uh, you know, decades. Read, read about, read what their memoirs uh, what they have said and try to learn from that and realize that we're going to have to go back and learn some of these uh, techniques uh, and use them and, and build um, underground or semi-underground. I completely agree. When I launched Savage Minds last year, I began with a piece that was a critique of media because 
that was my ethos. I got so sick of being told by editors, we can't run gender pieces, but they run one piece after another by men saying, I'm being excluded. My second piece on, on Savage Minds was rooted in the Samistat moment of history. Yes, yes. And it was Václav Havel, Power yes. of the Powerless. Right. These are important lessons. Absolutely. To, it was the third one, actually, Power of the Senseless and the Scrubbing of Public Memory. I've got a picture of Havel on the piece, in fact. And I begin with Hans Christian Andersen's The Emperor's New Clothes, right. because we are being told as one psychologist told me years ago when I wrote my first piece on the subject, he says, I can put your hand in warm water, but I can't make you feel it as cold. And this is what's happening now. Right. These men, and a lot of them are men, but there's a lot of women too. So to be fair, these men and women involved in the gender identitarian movement are reacting to something that seeks to empower them. And we really need to, to suss out the roots of this. I think there's a lot of post and Archie Bunker syndrome is what I call it. Men who are pretty angry that they don't get a leg up anymore. Not that their generation ever did. A lot of these men come from a generation post 1970s, but they want that leg up and they don't really appreciate our presence. The misogyny is as thick as the homophobia. It's just shocking. Yes. Another thing that we have to investigate is how NGOs are run. And this goes beyond this, but I would say we really need to ask why gay organizations suddenly, as soon as Crixivan was invented in 1996, were then adding T's to the mandate of LGP. Why is it that T had anything to do with us? Because you don't need to be Einstein to understand that what is called gender identity has zilch to do with sexuality. Mm -hmm. None. Yeah. But yet they were able to push that envelope and get that funding because it comes down to the way they're funded. And I do think we need to have reviews within academia as to why absolute hokum is being added to curriculum. I'll give you an example in my department at Montreal. They wanted to add uh, the description of gender. and We had a long discussion about gender. It was a French, it was a French university. So it was like, do we use, we can't use genre because that's not gender. So we use gender in English, blah, blah, blah. And I just thought, well, this is political posturing a priori. Why are we having to debate the individual nodalities of syllabi when in a departmental description, can't we just say comparative literature and cultural studies or whatnot? But it seems that universities have become this place of radicalization, you know, that we are trying to somehow create young minds and craft them in a way as if we were the new ISIS or Al-Qaeda. What is up with universities trying to do anything other than give students an exposure of a vast amount of literature on a certain subject from all sides of the political spectrum, not just two either, there right. can be many more than two. Why is it that these quasi-religious zealots are holding university posts when they ought to be at a church? Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a conundrum to me because I'm embarrassed when I see people like this happened at Toronto. They're signing petitions against their own students sometimes. And it's like, dude, you've got a tenure position and you are going after a graduate student. Yeah. What's that about? Right. Well, I think, you know, one of the things is not only we talked about it sort of being uh, trendy, it's what's being pushed. Um, some of the real work is hard. 
I can tell you as someone who has worked against uh, types of sexual exploitation, sex trafficking, uh, and now you know, increasingly surrogacy, these are hard subjects. This is hard work. If you try to take these on, you will be called names. I mean, I've been called names for 30 years um, uh, because of my anti-pornography stand. And I think a lot of the colleagues, they, they really aren't very brave uh, and they really don't, aren't interested in sort of the, the sometimes the really hard work. Uh, mm -hmm. And so who wants to take on really hard work in which you get called names uh, compared to simply taking up something trendy and uh, having fun? I mean, I guess I'm reminded of uh, Andrea Dworkin. I'm, I'm a feminist, not the fun kind. Uh, <laughs> and, and I see a lot of my colleagues are feminists, the fun kind. Oh, Donna, stop being so boring and <laughs> cis heteronormative. No, but I'm just, <laughs> I tell you, I, I sometimes, I, I actually would like to have some of these folks on the show. I just don't think they would accept any offer from me because they would Google me. And as someone said recently, because you know, there's that app plugin that you could put into Google, Shimangi Eyes, where you see how turfy someone is. No. And a woman on Facebook was asking if, do you want me to look you up? But I said, don't put my name in there or your computer will explode. Yeah. So I think, you know, if I were to have a discussion with any of these folks, trans or not, because a lot of the, what we're calling the trans lobby are white heterosexual men. There's yeah. no secrecy there, right. right? When you watch Owen Jones in the UK write piece after piece about how I'm a trans ally. Well, I have this dream of meeting up with Owen Jones in a cafe in Soho. It's my favorite Greek cafe, it's a, the Greek cafe. And just sitting down next to him and saying, uh, aren't you gonna have sex with me? And when he says he's gay, I'm gonna say, but I thought you said sex didn't matter, right? Yeah. Like just challenge these people on, on their ideology in a very candid camera kind of way because they don't believe it. At yeah. the same time, they're making a killing because the Guardian is being funded, a quarter of a million dollars was given to the Guardian by the Open Foundation Society yeah. to write trans pieces. Right. I've since gotten back to the OSF and to GLAAD and to the HRC in DC. I've tried to find out where they put their money because I've been able to find out the HRC has a $14 million a year budget for this. Where do they buy fake news pieces? Right. They write it up. You'll see it on CNN, on Forbes. These are publications that take corporate money, usually in the five or six digits, to run pieces during the height of COVID. Where do you want to travel? Yeah, like right. no one yeah. was traveling during lockdown. But this is the, the scandal within media. So you've got the minds that you're teaching over there and over here, I've got to deal with editors. I can't submit anything on this subject to anywhere left of center. Right. No way. And they won't run it. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that I think that the, we're going to have to, to, to get over. Uh, and that is that, that you can only publish uh, among your, the people you want to be your friends. Uh, I, I've known that for, for years and years, and it, uh, a lot of my pieces were, have been published uh, in uh, more conservative or even right-wing uh, publications, uh, because that's where I could get them published. Uh, also, uh, at a time, uh, this has been 20 years ago, when I was trying to influence uh, laws that were being passed in the U.S. Congress, uh, a lot of people didn't know what sex trafficking was. And I realized if I published in conservative venues, I was educating a whole group of people that didn't know what this was. And suddenly I was building allies. And so 
uh, a number, a few of us feminists really published in, more on the right. And we built allies. We got laws passed, important bills passed because we educated a group of people that hadn't, hadn't known about it. So uh, I don't, I, you know, I don't get hung up on uh, trying to identify where I want to publish or who I'm talking to uh, by the old uh, right-left politics. Well, that's something we do need to get over because as we're seeing, and I'm sure you've seen this, I definitely have, the left-wing men are not more feminist than right-wing men. In fact, I have days when I wonder if they're not more outright misogynist in yes. so many respects. Yeah, seriously. You're, you know, you're absolutely right. And, and I, you know, that little piece I wrote about uh, uh, fantasy worlds right and left, that's directly taken out of Andrea Dworkin's talk. One of the most important uh, speeches or pieces of writing I ever heard was in the around, I think it was about eight, 1986 or seven or so, there was a conference at New York Law School and Andrea Dworkin gave a talk and I heard her and she, it was, and it was called Woman Hating Right and Left. You can look it up. It is so good. And in what she talked about, okay, on the right, you've got men that they'll give you this, but then they got, they're going to uh, restrict your reproductive rights. And over there on the, the left, well, okay, they'll, uh, they'll be more uh, give you some reproductive rights, but then you have to give them pornography. And it's just such a wonderful analysis of how woman hating on both sides. And I have to say, when I wrote that essay, it was Andrea's work in, in my mind. It was fantasy worlds, right and left. Um, and I think that, and I give that to my students to read. And you can tell that just light bulbs just go on as they suddenly realize that they may not have real, really true allies anywhere. And they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do about that. Let's get back to your trying to kill all trans people through words. What are you going to do when you go back and see your colleagues? You're going to stare them down like a Clint Eastwood, like, you know, high noon or something. Right. Oh, that was yeah. Gary Cooper. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm certainly not, uh, I'm not going to, uh, to give in. I'm going to remain steadfast. Have you thought of taking action against their libel of you? Well, that's just it. I mean, uh, here in the United States, that's very difficult to prove. Uh, and uh, I may continue to look into it, but it, it is a, it's a big challenge. I think it's actually the libel law in, uh, in the UK is, is, is more liberal than it, hears in, here, it is in the United States. I mean, and once, you, once they say, once you become a public figure in the United States, which whatever that is, uh, it's it's very difficult to to hold anyone accountable for what they say. True, although they did try to paint you as someone who was dangerous. Oh yes, well that's the whole the whole business of distortion of language. Now uh, you don't have to engage in an act of violence or even threat of violence to be violent. Now language is violent. If you say something they don't like, it's an act of violence against them. It's a huge distortion, and yet they seem to be successful of equating simply something that makes them uncomfortable as being an act of violence.